This is Cultural Debris with host Alan Cornett. Welcome back to Cultural Debris. The last of the bulbs, well, this year's at least, have arrived and planting has commenced. It will take a while to get them all in the ground, but I will be rewarded in spring. I learned a new word to describe the kind of bulb planting I'm doing, Stinsenplatten. It's Dutch, as you might imagine, and also forgive my pronunciation, since so many bulbs do come from Holland, but early European explorers would bring these plants back with them, crocuses, early snow glories, bluebells, windflowers, and snowdrops. The wealthy would plant these bulbs in the lawns in front of brick estates, or Stinzen, and of course they would naturalize and spread as bulbs do. This was a public and dramatic display of wealth as winter ended. Thanks to modern nurseries, I can at least be wealthy in early spring blooms in front of my own brick Stinzen, which is but a humble Cape Cod. And of course, once unleashed upon the world, bulbs are hard to stop. So it is likely that even after I'm long gone, the descendants of bulbs that I plant will still be blooming. I'll be sure to keep you updated on my Stinzenplatten. At the time of this podcast release, there are a few more days left of Russell Kirk Month. As a celebration of Russell Kirk Month, I am offering a copy of Dr. Kirk's collection of ghost stories, Lord of the Hollow Dark, to a listener. There are two ways to win. Anyone who is a patron of the podcast at Patreon is eligible, so please consider supporting the podcast with any amount you feel comfortable with. Also, anyone who leaves a positive review of Cultural Debris on Apple Podcasts will have an entry. Submit your review on Apple Podcasts and then email me at culturaldebrispodcast at gmail.com so I'll know who you are. The giveaway will last until Halloween. In honor of the spooky season, our poem is Haunted Houses by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. All houses wherein men have lived and died are haunted houses. Through the open doors, the harmless phantoms on their errands glide with feet that make no sound upon the floors. We meet them at the doorway, on the stair, along the passages they come and go, impalpable impressions on the air, a sense of something moving to and fro. There are more guests at table than the hosts invited. The illuminated hall is thronged with quiet, inoffensive ghosts, as silent as the pictures on the wall. The stranger at my fireside cannot see the forms I see, nor hear the sounds I hear, but he perceives what is, while unto me all that has been is visible and clear. We have no title deeds to house or lands, Owners and occupants of earlier dates from graves forgotten stretch their dusty hands and hold in Mortmain still their old estates. The spirit world around this world of sense floats like an atmosphere and everywhere wafts through these earthly mists and vapors dense a vital breath of more 
ethereal air. Our little lives are kept in equipose by opposite attractions and desires. The struggle of the instinct that enjoys and the more noble instincts that aspires. These perturbations, this perpetual jar of earthly wants and aspirations high come from the influence of an unseen star, an undiscovered planet in our sky. And as the moon from some dark gate of cloud throws o'er the sea a floating bridge of light across whose trembling planks our fancies crowd into the realm of mystery and night, so from the world of spirits there descends a bridge of light connecting it with this, o'er whose unsteady floor that sways and bends wander our thoughts above the dark abyss. My guest is Professor Todd Harch of Eastern Kentucky University in Richmond, a specialist in the history of religion, particularly Latin American religion. Todd has written a new book, A Time to Build Anew, How to Find the True, Good, and the Beautiful in America. You'll enjoy our topics from sculpture to architecture to great books, programs, and more. Also, this is my very first in-person interview for Cultural Debris. Dr. Todd Harch, welcome to Cultural Debris. Good to be with you, Alan. You are not only on Cultural Debris, but we are actually sitting beside each other in, in the flesh, as it were, that you are... Um, you're experiencing a cultural debris first, which is my first face-to-face -face interview for the podcast, which honestly is a, a superior way to do interviews, I think. Yeah, I'm really glad I could be the first one, and <laughs> I, I welcome you to my office. Yeah, so we are in lovely Richmond, Kentucky, uh, in uh, at Eastern Kentucky University, which is actually really more in central Kentucky than Eastern Kentucky, but it's sort of Eastern Kentucky-ish, I guess. My family, as I mentioned to you uh, before we started recording, my family has a long history with Eastern Kentucky University. Both my parents are graduates of Eastern Kentucky University. I have a sister who's a graduate of Eastern Kentucky University. My grandparents were graduates of Eastern Kentucky University, and my wife uh, received a graduate degree from from Eastern Kentucky University. I, however, did not attend Eastern Kentucky University, which I'm sure is my deficiency uh, rather than the, the university. So how long have you been at Eastern Kentucky University? I've been here for 18 years. I'm now in my 19th year. So wow. it's been the vast majority of my professional career. Well, you must like it pretty well. Yeah, I, I, I love it. I mean, I've taught at a bunch of places, but these are my favorite students. So it's uh, I look forward to going to class every day. Yeah, Eastern Kentucky University is, uh, of course, meant to serve the people of the mountains. Uh, they didn't put it quite, quite as far in the mountains as perhaps they should have because I think it was hard to get there. <laughs> and so, so it's really just about 
30 to 40 minutes from where I live in Lexington, and sort of, which is sort of the, the bigger city, not really, I guess, a big city, but the bigger city of the area. And uh, you and I had the opportunity to talk over coffee recently, and you shared with me your, your recent book, A Time to Build Anew, How to Find the True Good and Beautiful in America. Now, you are an expert in Latin American religion. So what, what brought you to, to write this book? Because it seems a little out of, uh, out of maybe your primary area. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've always done some American religion. Like, I've written about American missionaries and about uh, an American citizen named Ivan Illich. Uh, so I've, I've always done something with American religion, but yeah, I mostly write about Latin America and, uh, but about five years ago, I just felt as many people were feeling that the United States is not doing well in terms of culture, politics, uh, religion, uh, in many ways. And my first thought was I should write a denunciation of <laughs> all the various problems that, that I could identify and you know, there's a place for a book like that, but eventually I realized it would work a lot better to write a more positive book and to provide examples of individuals and groups that were actually doing something good. And um, because I felt like that's what I need in my own life. I need an example of how to, to live out the good life. And um, so I thought it would be a much more positive project. Yeah, this is a it, this is a positive book. It's not um, it it leaves you encouraged. I feel like uh, on, on the whole, I guess the the discouragement might be, well, how do I do that? And I want to talk to you some about that. You start off the book uh, with a couple of questions. You say there are two questions, and these are, I guess, fundamental to what you were saying and and what you said about sort of the. The uh, problems with culture, I think most people listening to Cultural Debris probably agree with that to some degree or another. Probably most agree with that to a large degree, I would, I would guess. But you identify two questions, which are fundamental, and these are you know, uh, trying to solve the problem at the, at the root. What is wrong and what should we do? And that's sort of, that's sort of your starting point. What is wrong? Well, yeah, I tried not to emphasize that part, but um, I give this example of a man that I called Sam, who, you know, works and drives through what's something like a strip mall kind of place, and uh, he sees ugly architecture, and he goes home and just gets online and, um, you know, probably engages in pornography or something like that. And I have him as sort of an emblem of America today, of, of a land that is not only not doing good things, but is ugly and sad and disconnected. And so I wanted to provide at least a little bit of a background about those sorts of things. Um, but then to say this isn't the way that you have to live, that um, there are many uh, people who are, you know, 
doing something good or true or beautiful. Right, and that's you know your your emphasis there on the these, these three fundamentals of the the true, the good, and the beautiful, and how we can find those. Um, you talk about um, modernity as a problem, which you talk which is what Sam is experiencing here, and you you talk about this idea of a flattening. What do you mean by a flattening? Well. The, the modern project seems to empty things out, to strip away meaning and value. Um, it's often a debunking project. Like, this isn't really special. This doesn't really have a meaning. It's really just these physical laws or these atoms bumping together. Um, and if you totally buy into that view of the world, there's not much left. And, um, you know, science is good, but a scientism is bad, ultimately because it's unrealistic. That God did create the world. The, the world does have meaning. The world is beautiful there are great truths that can be found. And so the, that empty or flat world that modernity tends to produce, um, I, I think one of the major problems is it's just, that's not reality. That it's, it's, a, it's a false view of the world we live in. Yeah, I think we've, we have all suffered through maybe 18 months or so of scientism run rampant, haven't we? And it's, it doesn't seem to be going well. It's uh, and that this really what we have experienced and are currently experiencing really postdates your book. You you sort of distilled the problem down and and made it uh, made it clearer. I think for a lot of us, just how just how bad it could be. Maybe it was it was worse even than we thought. But you say that being negative about that, which is easy to do, is not the course of action. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there is a certain value in a correct diagnosis, but if that's all we do, the disease will continue. And so I've been more and more convinced that this is a time for building for, for trying new things. And I mean building in many ways, you know, of, of new art, new institutions, uh, new attempts, uh, new organizations. Um, and really, uh, no one's going to be impressed with your criticism at this point. Uh, it just, it, the people who would agree with you already agree, and the people who don't agree just won't hear it. And I, I my, my, thought now is the best argument is an achievement. Like if you, if you made a beautiful piece of art right now, it would work much better than your, you know, critical article about some aspect of COVID policy or, you know, White House politics or something like that. Or if you started a new group that was doing something good and it was really thriving, that would get people's attention much more than your negative critique. I think there's a lot of truth to that. We tend, of course, critiques tend to be 
maybe a lot of times, even though they're assessing maybe the wider world, I think they may tend to be more inward looking. Uh, we're making ourselves feel better, or at least we think we are. We may actually end up making ourselves feel worse <laughs> through doing that. But but we're not really solving the problem until until we're making something and we're doing something. The the cult produces culture, right? We've got I'm I'm staring at Christopher Dawson's progress in religion here. Christopher Dawson would tell us the cult produces culture. So we so culture is what we ought to be doing, right? You start off, interestingly enough, with an, with an artist in, in your book. So the book is divided into different chapters that focus on an area that you highlight as um, a successful outworking of what you have in mind, whether that is an artist, whether that's an organization, uh, some sort of... Uh, educational project even a politician in a city even a politician even yeah. politicians can do uh, successful things and I want to I definitely want to talk about about that project you start off with an artist uh, named Frederick Hart what can you tell me about Frederick Hart well Frederick Hart was a sculptor who is unknown to most Americans but at least in some people's opinion, he was probably the greatest religious sculptor of the 20th century. And um, he came to prominence by winning a competition for uh, a major sculptural work at the National Cathedral, the Episcopal Cathedral in Washington, D.C. And he produced this incredible uh, picture, not picture, but sculpture of um, creation. And it shows these figures emerging from stone. They seem somewhat confused, but moving towards something. And the cultural critic Tom Wolfe called it a masterpiece, and so did some other um, art critics. But by and large, the uh, art establishment simply ignored what he had done because it didn't fit into their view of what art should be now. You know, it wasn't transgressive. Uh, it wasn't modernist. Uh, it was in a religious frame. Uh, and so to them, it was almost nothing. But Hart went on to do uh, several amazing pieces of work um, without the acclaim from the establishment, but in a way that appealed to some cultured people, but often appealed just to the common person. Because I think he took the common person seriously and realized that common people like beauty more than they like transgression. Uh, yes, I, I think uh, when we when we discover true beauty, it's not something that only appeals to to the elite. In fact, as we discover with him, it's often they're the ones who sort of put their nose up at it. It's interesting that Tom Tom Wolfe wrote his obituary for the New York Times, which is quite. I mean, that's quite an accomplishment in and of itself. And it's quite a lengthy obituary. Mm -hmm. uh, I sort of wonder how, I feel like Tom Wolfe had to have sort of pulled strings to, to, to make that sort of thing happen. But he starts off, uh, Tom Wolfe describes him as a juvenile delinquent in, in South Carolina, got, got kicked out of 
the University of South Carolina, dropped out of high school, got kicked out of the University of South Carolina, which is one of my alma maters, and and then becomes this great sculptor. Yeah, he's he has this incredible story where he, he moved to Washington D.C. hoping, uh, with in the back of his mind that he wanted to be a sculptor, and he couldn't really find a place that would teach him how to do that uh, in art schools. But he did find the National Cathedral, and he realized that this was really the only place in the U.S. and perhaps one of the only ones in the world where he could actually learn these traditional skills. But the sculptors who were doing the work there wouldn't take him on. Uh, they didn't need any more, you know, people to be taught. And so he took whatever job he could get. I think he was like an errand boy or, you know, a messenger in the cathedral. And then he would experiment on pieces of stone that he found. And it was doing that that caught the attention of the sculptors who were working on the other projects at the cathedral. And they eventually took him on uh, to teach him and train him. And it just happened that he was at one of the only places in the world where he could have learned that skill of traditional sculpture. You know, that, of course, that story brings up a, a real problem that we have, which is that, that there has been a disconnection with the past, with traditional uh, skills, uh, particularly those sorts of... Um, artisan skills, those hard skills maybe, where, uh, you know, it's, uh, everybody can do a PowerPoint presentation, but not everybody can, can lay a brick, right? Or at his level, much, much more elevated to sculpt as he did. But where does he go? What if, you know, if someone wants to sculpt today, if someone wants to follow in his footsteps, where do they go? What do they do? How, how, how does someone realize that kind of trajectory today? Yeah, there's, um, I think when he was doing this, uh, he was pretty much alone. I think today there are a few places, uh, and I'm forgetting their names, but in uh, New York and other parts of the country, they are teaching traditional arts, including sculpture. Um, and so there's, there are more possibilities today, especially with the internet, you can find them. Whereas, you know, before internet, it was a lot harder sure. to even find well, out and where I know, these were. I know Charleston, which we're going to talk about a, a little bit later, uh, does have a, uh, it has a school for sort of traditional construction techniques, not sculpture per se that I'm aware of. Um, I spoke in an earlier episode with an artist who was trained at the Prince's School in, in London. Uh, where they have, um, where they have a, a program on traditional arts. I don't recall if they have sculpture, particularly, but they probably do. But I'm not. Sh I'm not aware of anything quite the equivalent of that uh, in the U.S. I, but there, there certainly seems to be a renewed interest in it. I think that finding the outlet may be. It, I think it would be it would be good to find more outlets for those sorts of things. Yeah, maybe. Um, yeah, this is the kind of thing that you could put in the show notes. I, I don't remember the, right. the the names, but there sure. there are some. And just to give you an example, like here on the EKU campus, there's a statue of Daniel Boone. It's not great, but it's pretty good. Yeah, I've rubbed I've rubbed the foot of the Daniel Boone's 
statue. And that's what people do. When students walk mm -hmm. by, they rub his foot. It's, it's good public art because it, he's a key figure from our history and students know who he is. They can see who he is from the sculpture itself. He sort of represents the frontier spirit of Kentucky. That works. Now, there's some other sculpture on the EKU campus that looks like a pile of junk. Right. And most students look at it and think, that's strange, and then walk by. It would never even occur to them to rub it. Right. It's, it's, sure. it's meaningless. Um, and unfortunately, too many departments think that that pile of junk is the, the cutting edge of sculpture. But it's not. I mean, it's, it's a dead end. Uh, I think that's absolutely right. In um, in Lexington, of course, there was a battle over the Civil War statues at the old courthouse downtown, which they eventually just took out. Uh, but of course, UK will like Eastern. I'm sure I haven't seen I haven't seen your lovely piles of junk, but we we have our own in Lexington around UK and. Uh, and uh, they've done a project in a, on a street near where I live, sort of a revitalization project, and they've done some public art that are just these abstract pieces that don't mean anything. And it's, it's sort of my theory that as a culture at large, we're incapable of deciding on or endorsing actual representational art. That if there is representational art, the immediate reaction is we have to pull it down, as we saw last summer. Um, thankfully, that hasn't happened to Daniel Boone here yet. Uh, <laughs> I won't make. I'm not willing to make any pred uh, predictions. But, uh, but I, I feel like that, like you say, it's a dead end. But our society is at a dead end because there's no one that we can decide is okay enough to represent, uh, you know, even, even statues of, of Mary have been vandalized and broken. Yeah, and this, broken. this happened to Frederick Hart. So uh, he entered the competition for the Vietnam Memorial. And of course, probably all your listeners know that Maya Lin won with a, a, basically a wall with names engraved in it. Um, and I, I actually, I like that part, but some veterans complained that it was too abstract, right? Because that's what she intentionally did. She built something that was abstract. It didn't represent a person, but more the death toll and the, you know, the vast number of names that you have to look at there, which is, which is, I, I think is okay. But some veterans wanted something more personal. And so Frederick Hart, uh, won another competition to do something that was more personal. And he designed um, a set of three figures sort of emerging from the woods. And there was a firestorm of controversy about this because they were too representational. Like right. they were representing actual human persons. And this was seen as offensive. Like there weren't women. Well, you know, of course, most of the Vietnam soldiers were men. <laughs> and, you know, they didn't represent all ethnic groups. They actually represented three ethnic groups. But but even then, you were leaving somebody out. And um, to me, those critiques were so, um, 
I don't know, out there. You know, that, that so, so much the kind of ideas that elite artists would make, but that common people would never think of. And that's, I think, where Frederick Hart excelled, was that he realized you can be an excellent artist, have the finest uh, techniques, and craft something that the public will love. And in fact, that's your job. You don't have to dumb it down, but you can, you can craft something that people can really relate to and enjoy. But the, I guess, the powers that be, capital letters there, the powers that be, are, as they did with Hart, are essentially going to make him anonymous. Uh, you you write uh, how and I guess Wolf talks about this in his obituary where he kept waiting for reviews of his work to come out and they essentially just shut him out. It wasn't that they were giving him negative reviews; they refused to acknowledge that his his work even existed. He would have been happy to receive a negative <laughs> review because that would have meant people were paying attention. They were giving him the time, but they wouldn't even do that. Right. Um, and, and I think that that I think that is a challenge uh, that that we have to face in doing the kind of projects that you you talk about in your book and the kind of projects that you're proposing uh, that that we pursue because we have to understand that if we're really doing kind of traditional work, and it's not necessarily, you're not advocating tradition-bound work, because Hart was actually quite innovative, um, but he was operating within the stream of traditional art. He wasn't, uh, he wasn't simply hearkening back, but he was building and innovating. Um, but we have to accept that, that the culture at large, uh, the people who currently pull the levers of power are not going to applaud those efforts. Yeah, I think for a lot of the kind of things that I'm advocating, you can't consider um, what you've done a failure if it doesn't reach the mainstream. I think you have to consider much more. I'm going to have a limited audience, but I want to to please them. Right. And um, yeah, if, I think, and I think that's true for almost anything, actually, whether it's traditional or not. That you know, our culture today is so divided that there are many tribes, and mainstream success often just means you know dumbing something down. No, well, I think that's that's certainly the case. I, but I, I think um, I think you make a good point there. Sort of this this tribalism, which we often bemoan, or often is bemoaned. But it does, in a sense, or it can, free us up to not worry about these. What the, what the New York Times says. In Hart's day, the New York Times carried a lot more weight than it does now. Um, no, nobody gets the New York Times in their mailbox anymore, do they? I mean, and, and, uh, and few people pay to log in that I'm aware of. Um, so the, I guess the, the trajectory of, of the, the loss of influence that these, that these, um, 
old legacy media and uh, institutions have, have um, their loss of influence and power may be to our benefit mm -hmm. in, in that sort of thing. Yeah, and so I have a chapter on uh, Notre Dame School of Architecture, and one of their architects is a um, man named Duncan Stroik, and he designs traditional churches. And if he measured his success based on, you know, the mainstream architecture magazines or by the New York Times, he would be a failure, right? But he has designed beautiful projects for churches, parishes, and um, colleges, and he's meeting the needs of those audiences. So I, th I think that's the way you have to think. You know, he's, he's making a beautiful church for a specific parish, and those people will love it. They will appreciate it. He designed a beautiful chapel for Thomas Aquinas College, and those students will love it. Now, if other people notice, that's great, but he's serving that audience first and, and doing it excellently. I think that that is, that is something that, that architecture, art in general, is lost sight of, that rather than pleasing the, the people very often, even who are paying for it, that there is this playing to the establishment, the playing to the awards. I want to win an award for this building rather than actually serve the purpose of the building. That's uh, it's corrupted the entire system. Let's talk a little bit about the Notre Dame School of Architecture. You're listening to the Cultural Debris Podcast. The Notre Dame School of Architecture is unique. What is unique about it? It is the only classical uh, school of architecture in the United States uh, devoted exclusively to traditional architecture. There's places that do some classical or traditional architecture, but that's all that Notre Dame does. So it's, it's, it's really uh, one of a kind. That's, that really is extraordinary. But, but even as you record in your book, that's relatively new even for them. I mean, a few decades, but... Uh, it was it was something of a um, I guess an, a great act of courage for them to go that route because they weren't that way before they weren't um, and I have I start the chapter with the description of the work of a one of their professors who thought that um, basically you should study the past but never try to repeat it or copy it in any way and his vision of like the perfect American uh, product was the Jeep because it didn't lie about anything and everything else that was produced in America lied and <laughs> he designed his own house that was basically two um, Airstream trailers connected by a glass wall uh, at things like that so that was what Notre Dame was doing and they weren't doing well and they were in danger of losing their accreditation and so they were open for a change they open open for uh, something radical and the radical thing was tradition so they went to a uh, talented young architect named thomas gordon smith and he's his vision was let's have a classical program like a totally classical architecture program and some administrator at notre dame thought that was okay because i i guess they realized you know if we just go the same as everybody else we're going to be the same as everybody else but if we're going to be the only people doing this and we have a chance to excel 
And so they gave him the reins and they allowed him to hire some uh, traditional architects, including Duncan Stroik. And uh, he's made it into a thriving program over the past uh, 30 years. I mean, he's retired now, but in his uh, time there, he did. Why, why hasn't someone else tried it? Why are they still the only one? Because I mean, it, it is, I suppose, in sort of institutional terms, relatively new. But what, 30 years mm-hmm. or so? But within that amount of time, people have seen their success. Uh, is it just that that the that modern architecture is so entrenched that they can't that they can't possibly conceive of, of anything else? I think the biggest resistance is from the faculty of the various schools of architecture, and so um, faculty who are professional architects just think this is backwards this is this is terrible almost in a moral sense to do this sort of building and so even if there was an administrator somewhere who said we're going to have a classical program it's just very difficult to get going so the best they've been able to do at places like catholic u miami maybe a couple other places is to have a strong classical element Uh, but even i think it's hard i think that there's almost like a an ideological conflict. Oh, be- I, yeah, I think that's absolutely right. <laughs> between the two schools of architecture. And so it, I think it actually works a lot better as a whole school because then you're not fighting for it just to present your ideas. Right. Well, what what have they accomplished? What has what has Notre Dame accomplished in their 30 years? Well, they've totally revamped the curriculum. Um, to give a few examples, in their first year, the students don't use computers, so they draw everything by hand, uh, which they say gives them a much better sense for building. Um, they study the tradition going all the way back to the Greeks and Romans. And then they spend a year in Rome, and they get to see classical architecture in person, which gives them, I think, a much better understanding of what they're they're shooting for. Because I think if you haven't really experienced traditional architecture as a living, breathing building, it's just sort of abstract. But they, you know, they live in these buildings. They they walk the streets with these buildings in Rome. Um, and then when they come back, they're allowed to use computers for drafting programs and stuff. So they're not they're not caught in the past like they don't use any modern tools, but their goal is traditional uh, architecture. I think having that kind of, as you talked about, that sort of transcending the abstract, going to a place like Rome, and then not only saying, this is how people used to do it, but saying, and you can do this too. Mm -hmm. Um, I would imagine that, that 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 ought to be inspiring um, in a way that showing somebody a modern skyscraper or uh, classroom building on a college campus is not so inspiring. It seems like it would hard be hard to be inspired by a glass box, but they keep building them anyway. <laughs> yeah, I don't. It it, it is strange. Um, and I think the students that emerge, that graduate from Notre Dame, have just a, a real appreciation for beauty, 
for the city, for where the buildings will go, um, and for uh, sort of a, almost a way of life. So seeing architecture not just as um, a one-shot deal, like you get paid, you build a building, and you move on, but seeing these buildings as part of human communities, human cities, that Rome does that, and the whole emphasis of the program does that. So one of my favorite stories, I don't know if I can share oh, it, is please. a Notre Dame uh, professor named Philip Bess, who uh, focuses on urbanism. And uh, Fenway Park in Boston was going to be basically destroyed and enlarged and, you know, creating one of these monstrous new baseball parks with an enormous parking lot and all these sorts of things. And the neighborhood actually employed him and other architects and planners to come up with an alternative plan. And so they looked at the stadium and figured out where you could put some new seats, but still keep the flavor of what's really the most beautiful baseball park in America. And their ideas were so popular that they eventually convinced the owners of the baseball park, yes, this is the way to go. And so if you've ever looked at Fenway Park and thought, that's a beautiful baseball park, you can give your thanks to Notre Dame School of Architecture. <laughs> so they, they, have, they have saved baseball. And, Basically, and, yeah. <laughs> and I'll also mention uh, that uh, past guest on the podcast, uh, Eric Bootsma, is a graduate of the Notre Dame uh, School of Architecture. Um, I believe he has a master's degree from there. And um, I would refer people to that episode where he and I discuss architecture. And uh, Eric may be back on a future episode to discuss a, another project uh, that he's working on. But uh, he and I think others are, are uh, bringing a lot of these traditional concepts and applying them to modern circumstances in a way that will work. And not simply as standalone buildings, but also as you were just discussing just the idea of urbanism uh, with which he's very much uh, involved with, and I think uh, there is a growing movement uh, of interest there uh, in how these buildings and how neighborhoods can work together in a way that can free us from the car and uh, or at least the centrality of the car, if not the car entirely. So those are those are all important things. Yeah, there are a lot of moving parts on all of these things, um, but uh, I'll refer folks to uh, to listen to that podcast episode uh, that we did a, earlier in the year. While we're talking a little bit about education, uh, one of the chapters that I, that I guess is the most intriguing in a way, and it's kind of maybe the most sort of mysterious, is is the chapter on um, University of Kansas Integrated Humanities Program which uh, existed in the 70s and only lasted a short period of time. How many years? About 10 years. Yeah, so not very long. But it ended because of its success, not because it was unsuccessful. So tell us a little bit about the University of Kansas Integrated Humanities Program. Well, John Sr., was an English professor, and two of his colleagues started uh, basically what was a great books program uh, with the text that they used, very similar to great books programs at 
other universities um, that would fulfill the general education requirements at the University of Kansas. Now, it doesn't sound very groundbreaking, but their program proved to be extremely popular, and in its first few years, it was growing by leaps and bounds. Um, but what made it really distinctive was how they taught. First of all, um, they didn't allow their students to take notes. You were not allowed to take notes in class. Second, they taught everything in teams, so the three of them would be on stage talking to each other. So it was taught as a form of sort of conversation and dialogue rather than a strict lecture. But probably most important of all, they loved the texts that they were teaching, and most of them they actually believed in. <laughs> and it doesn't sound, that doesn't sound, if you're not in academia, it doesn't sound that crazy. But if you're in academia, you know that's kind of crazy, right? That very few teachers of literature actually love their texts, or at least they, they don't convey that love to students anymore. Um, but these men did, and it proved incredibly attractive to their students so that their students would, would end up um, going to their office hours and you know asking more about Milton or Shakespeare or the Odyssey or whatever it was. And then these three men were also serious Catholics and they didn't proselytize in class, but a lot of times the students would end up you know, converting to Catholicism or becoming more interested in Catholicism or Christianity in general. Um, and that's what got them in trouble. So it was very popular, but it was also actually changing the lives of the students. Well, and so what uh, the numbers of, of converts is really surprising. How many, you remember how many it was? That I don't remember converted? the exact, but it's hundreds. There were hundreds of converts in a decade, and uh, many went on to become priests, nuns, uh, uh, monks. That was especially concerning to parents. Right, and so the really what happened was parents started raising an uproar because Tommy, who they sent to Lawrence, Kansas, is not only a, a papist but but possibly becoming a, a monk in France or something. That's right, and um, you know I, I can as a parent I can I can relate to that. <laughs> sure. um, but I I think that. As, as a professor, as a teacher, it was probably the most fun for me to write about sure. because it just reminded me like these ideas that we talk about and just sort of, you know, share as like information, some of them are really powerful. Right. Some of them yeah. can change people's lives. And to see like hundreds of college students in the 1970s um, getting into poetry and stargazing and dancing. These are all things they did in the program. Um, simply because their professors loved what they taught was a really good uh, lesson for me. Sure, yeah, I mean, it, it, it is, it's good to, to be reminded that these ideas and this great art is as powerful as we say it is mm -hmm. if it's unleashed. Um, and and I think that maybe it tells us how much we're holding it back. Uh, what could it do if we just unleash these things in a way that uh, that showed that 
that not only are they are they true and good and beautiful, but that we actually believe them. And I, uh, more than anything, I think our culture and the church suffers from a crisis of confidence more than anything else. And in education in particular, we suffer from a crisis of critique, right? That in a lot, almost every discipline in the humanities, the goal is to tear things down, right? Just to, to show, you know, why this was written, you know, why this person who wrote it is a terrible person, um, why this is an example of some sin or another. Um, and you miss the whole piece of literature or the whole piece of art. And so what these men did was to put all that to the side and just say, we're just going to focus on this poem or this book. And uh, that unleashed the power. Mm -hmm. um, and that idea of love in education, you know, we never talk about that in the, the current university, right? Sure. It's, it's all about critique. What, what, are, what is the big thing that they talk about all the time on this campus and others? Critical thinking. Right. That seemed to be like the highest thing you can do is critical thinking. And the integrated humanities program showed no. You know, the highest, the highest thing is love. You know, loving a poem, loving beauty, loving just going, they would have their students just go outside and look at the stars. Loving the stars. That's a higher thing. Has this program been emulated? Several uh, alumni have tried um, in, at various levels, including um, the high school level. Uh, some of their alumni are professors. And then probably the, the biggest attempt is Wyoming Catholic College, which is a whole new Catholic college based on the principles of this program. And just for some examples, they put a big emphasis on the great books, but also on the wilderness and on horseback riding. All their students have to learn to ride a horse. And, you know, I think because that's reality, right. you can get, you don't want your students to be lost in their head. Mm -hmm. You want them to have contact with reality. And that's in Wyoming, they can really do that. They can. And, and even much more so than I think probably when you and I were in school. Things are so, everything's in the ether, of, and, and we've seen a lot more of that the past couple of years with Zoom classes mm -hmm. and all of that. My daughter spent her freshman year of college almost entirely on Zoom classes, right? She didn't know her classmates at all. There, there was no, as the kids say today, there was no touching grass, right? That, there was no riding a horse. Mm -hmm. um, and... Uh, riding a video game horse isn't the same as riding a real one. Yeah, Wyoming Catholic, the students aren't even allowed to have cell phones. I don't think they did anything on Zoom. They, uh, for the whole pandemic, they just had in-person classes because they thought they saw that as so key mm -hmm. to their model, to this idea of reality and right. being there in person. Well, that is certainly standing against the, uh, the, the ethos of the moment, for sure. Well, I, wanna, I would love to talk about all the chapters, but we don't have enough time. I will encourage people to read the book, but I do want to talk about the chapter on Charleston, just because that, uh, that chapter, as much as any, spoke to me as far as the, 
the preservation and recovery of the beautiful city of Charleston. I'm sure many of the listeners to the podcast have been to Charleston and admired it and enjoyed it and have gone back for more because along with Savannah, it's probably uh, certainly two of the, the best cities in the country. But it wasn't always that way for Charleston when Mayor Joe Riley took over back in the 70s. Yeah, that's right. Um, Joe Riley grew up in Charleston, and um, while while he was a kid, basically Charleston was falling apart. They had they had racial problems and they had infrastructure problems, and it wasn't being taken care of. And it never would have made the list of you know a vacation destination. It had sort of a shabby charm, but it wasn't doing that well. And uh, so Joe Riley uh, was the mayor of Charleston for 10 terms and he had a vision for revitalizing the city and that Charleston that you know today is in many ways the city that he built. Yeah I think we can safely say Charleston wouldn't be Charleston if it wasn't for him. That he obviously other people were involved but he had the vision that no one else had and if it hadn't been for him it wouldn't have happened. I think that's clear. Yeah, I, I think so, that he loved the city, right? He loved it. He didn't, at, at a time when a lot of Americans were thinking, like, the city is lost. Uh, you should either move out of the city, or if you stay in the city, you should try and make it more like a suburb. He, he would have none of that. He grew up uh, in downtown Charleston, and he knew what a city could be, uh, and he had a vision for it, that it could be what it was only better and he just worked on that for 40 years and he had he had enormous success he was he was always a bit controversial because a lot of people didn't share his vision but he stuck to it he was i guess a new urbanist before new urbanism was cool but he blended it i think in in from my point of view he blended it perfectly with historic preservation which is my big gripe with a lot of new urbanism, and I discussed this with Eric Bootsma in our episode uh, on, on that topic, but a lot of the new urbanists have really zero interest in historic preservation or beauty. Mm-hmm. But I think Riley understood that, that you've got to have both, that if you want to have a city that people thrive in. You also have to have a beautiful city. And Charleston already had the beauty. They just had they just had to shine it up a little bit and uh, and push out the ugly. And that we have a hard time doing that in cities today. Yeah, we have a really hard time doing it. And even in Charleston, I mean, it's a constant battle. I mean, um, you know, architects and planners are always trying to build something that doesn't fit at all, and it takes a lot. I mean, it's a lot of, it's an ongoing battle to fight for those things, but, you know, he was so detail-oriented. Like, he would he would drive around with architects um, and just show them, you know, these are the buildings that we love. Can you build something that fits? These are the shades of paint that we love. Can you use one of these? These are the sizes of pebbles that we use in our walkways. Can you do something like that? And so his ability to see the big picture, but also get down to realize that the details matter. 
and to take the time to focus on those things. Like I think a lot of mayors would just say, well, somebody else talk to the architect. But he would take his time and say, I want to drive you around. I want to show you these things. And when a mayor does that, I think it makes a big difference. Oh, absolutely. And of course, uh, part of the problem that you have, going back to our discussion of, of the Notre Dame School of Architecture, is having the architects who are capable of doing that and are willing to do it. Because as you said, Charleston's constantly having to fight this battle with, with people who see this, this great success and want to do their best to, to blow it up. You know, that this, this beautifully restored historic city cannot be allowed to stand. We've, uh, it's sort of the uh, Le Corbusier vision of Paris, right? We've got to tear it down and build these big block sta- uh, uh, cityscapes. Yeah, it's incredible. So people from all over the world come to Charleston because of its historic preservation, because of the the palette it has, because it feels like a real place. And then architects will come and try and build something that doesn't fit at all and be upset when they're criticized. It's not really understandable, except that that's how they've been taught, right? That their job is to stand out. Right. instead of to fit with the fabric of a place that already exists. It's like they're doing this one-off thing that will make them look good. But, you know, how, how does that build a city? That just builds your career. Right. Right. And that's, I, I think, that's one of the things that, um, I think that's one of the challenges that we face in sort of following this call that you have in this book is that, while it is a call to step out and and have an impact on culture, but at the same time, there has to be a humility about that. That that it's it's about something larger than yourself, and I think that someone like Hart is a good example of that. Riley's a good example of that. Obviously, the, the sort of the totality of Charleston is a monument to him, but still, it it's it's making everything fit. And so, what what our job is, it seems to me, is to find a way to have an impact, but but one that may not be perceived as individually aggrandizing, maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, and I think that there's a difference between the common good and public opinion. So in retrospect, I think we can see that Joe Riley did a great deal for the common good in Charleston. Now, as far as public opinion, he was often criticized from both sides, right? That often he was seen by, he was a Democrat, he was seen as too conservative you know, too too much thinking about building and too many people were coming to the city and that sort of thing. And then from the right, he was also critiqued for, for other reasons. Um, so he was often controversial, but he had enough integrity to keep working on what he knew was good and true, um, despite the criticism. And I, just, I think it took a lot of character for him to do that. And then, and then, at when he got older, to step down and leave it to somebody else. But he he did his best for forty years. Yeah, that's pretty good. For uh, I, I have a hard time of thinking of another politician 
it's actually had a positive impact that's been around that long. So, <laughs> Well, that's why I put them in the book. I wanted, you know, because most of what I'm talking about in the book is like culture, education, things like that. I wanted to have at least one example of politics because we can't give up on the political. Right. You know, my, and I think that the city is a great place to focus because it's more possible to to change things. You know, it's hard to change a state, much less a nation. But if you get together with your friends, maybe you could change your city. Right. Or at least your neighborhood. At least you your know. neighborhood. Um, I, I was encouraged at an event recently that uh, my mayor in Lexington quoted Joe Riley uh, and spoke, uh, was quoting him in regards to beauty. And that's not something that you hear too often from any politician to hear the word beauty come out of come out of their mouth in a positive way as something that should be achieved through policy. Uh, so maybe there's some hope there, uh, getting getting her to see or in other mayors in other places to see what's possible. That maybe more is possible than they than they think or have even considered in some of those things. So if I am someone who wants to have an impact uh, in the way you were talking about, um, you say the great project is not criticism but construction, what can I do? What can our listeners do other than send a tweet? What, what might we accomplish? Well, that's the question. And it really does depend on each person. You know, your strengths, your loves, your specific environment that you're in. Like for me, I thought it was writing a positive book. That was, the, <laughs> that was my constructive act. Um, and I, I think you need to start with what you have and where you are. You know, if you're a, a writer, to maybe try something bigger, bolder more beautiful than before if you're an artist. Um, but I really hope some people do start uh, in politics as well, you know, whether it's running for the school board, uh, the city council, you know, things that aren't the, the hardest to do, that are really in the realm of possibility, or it could just mean supporting your friend who's doing that. Um, I think doing something is is the way to go to take a small step and see where it leads you know you don't you don't start off being joe riley right you know he started <laughs> he started somewhere uh, he was like in the state legislature beforehand and before that he was active in local politics right so you, you start somewhere and see where it takes you well you cite saint benedict and the reacting to the ruins of the roman empire benedict has been cited by others you seem to have a little bit of a different approach, do you think, about uh, what we should learn from St. Benedict? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I have no problem with the Benedict option, <laughs> if rightly understood. Um, but what, what I emphasize with Benedict is that he and his monks were building in the wilderness, but that then people came and joined them, and um, that, that really they were a creative force. And so they were seeking first God, but then all things were added to them. 
right, that, that they started schools. Then people gathered around them, and so they became the, the nuclei of, of settlements and eventually cities. Um, and then sometimes they'd be destroyed and then they'd have to rebuild. So what I was emphasizing was sort of the building and rebuilding that the, that the monks had to do. Well, we all have a job, sounds like. We have to find out what it is. That's the, the discernment is, uh, is a lot of times the hardest part, I think. Yeah, perhaps some people could have a podcast about culture. Perhaps so. Perhaps so. That, that would be a wild thing to do, but you never know. You never know. Well, Todd Hartz, thank you for having me in your office here overlooking a lovely, beautiful oak tree in Richmond, Kentucky. And uh, I appreciate the conversation about culture and doing something about it. It's been great. Enjoyed talking about it.